happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 194 for October the 14th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer. I am here in central Oklahoma wearing my UCO Bronchos t-shirt tonight because we've been to, to see volleyball and we have, we only have one child in college this year. It is, it is better to only have one rather than two children in college at the same time. But even after they leave, you, you have some bills to pay, but we're not here to talk about that. I'm joined by the maestro of ed tech who lives in an amazing valley surrounded by mountains and he has a constant campfire going at his feet at all times to keep all the animals at bay. It's it's Dr. Jason Neifer from Montana. And you look the part tonight, sir. Is that even flannel that you have on? It is flannel. And in fact, I have declared it flannel season in Montana, which is very exciting because it's my it's my favorite uh, clothing. Um, and I guess I do have a really kind of rugged, the big beard and the, the hair. And now the flannel shirt do give me a certain, what do they say, je ne sais quoi. So, uh, yes, I am Jason Neifer, and I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School. And our offices, uh, I'm not on campus right now, but are on the University of Montana campus, which is just down the street. And um, winter is is coming. Um, we have not had a freeze, a hard freeze yet, but uh, it's been raining for the last couple of days and a cold October rain. And it's starting to smell. Well, actually, two weeks ago, it's it starts smelling like fall. Fall's got a very distinct scent, uh, in, particularly in western Montana. But you can smell fall outside, and uh, things are happening. I would guess snow hit four thousand feet. I think over the weekend. I think we're at thirty four hundred feet. So it's coming. Yeah. Well, uh, we uh, had a fall break this last weekend, which was lovely. And today in Oklahoma City, it was supposed to get to 91 degrees Fahrenheit. When I asked Google Home when we got home, it was 89, so almost got that high. Um, But we were in the mountains of New Mexico and got to go camping, which we did not do this summer. And we rented a trailer from RV Share and... Did the basically it was about a twelve hour drive because we took our time going out maybe ten hours coming back, but it was twenty two degrees when we left our campsite on Monday morning and had to get some ice out of the dog's bowl. This was Moose who turns one year old tomorrow and his first time to go camping and it was lovely. The high country we were about nine thousand some feet, but even higher than that it was. The trees in some areas were just like no leaves, but we, we had lots of beautiful fall colors and we will anticipate the arrival of fall here at some point, which normally by the end of October and Halloween time, maybe we'll get a freeze. So a little bit different, but tonight we are going to end our discussion of the weather. We are, we were noting before the start of the show that the COVID peak or spike is is upon us. So <clears throat> we did not have any available ICU beds yesterday in the Oklahoma City hospital system, according to somebody who was at our city council meeting and, and I read about. 
And Jason, you said one of your communities is like at 140 percent. Was that Great Falls? That was yeah, Great Falls was uh, well over capacity, and that's that's hospital wide, and it wouldn't be all all COVID. It's a it's a major regional center, a major major regional medical center as well. But yeah, it's certainly happening. And I know there was a New York Times article that was posted a couple hours back talking about that the uh, uh, rural Western states are now kind of the epicenter of this and Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, to a lesser extent, Wyoming, uh, Idaho. Um, I think I've seen a bit of a surge in Alaska. That's, that's where this is happening now. So, you know, we, I, I think... Most people did this to come back around, right? When wintertime came and, and certainly, um, you know, this, we're not over it yet. And I would say that, uh, uh, Western, uh, rural Western states are kind of seeing what some of the coastal states saw early on in the pandemic. Yeah. Well, this is the first time here in the Oklahoma City area that I've I've heard that we've gotten, you know, to a capacity for hospitals. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to continue being at school in person. <clears throat> we went back on August 14th and man, I had one of the best days probably ever uh, teaching kids. We have been working on dialogue projects in fifth grade introductory Spanish. And so the kids had uh, written dialogues in Spanish and we'd use some vocabulary from a, a movie talk we had. And then we made puppet uh, videos with finger puppets. And then in scratch, they, they had already done a project where they had put the, the word bubbles in there, the, the speech bubbles. And this time um, they did those projects with a partner, but then they recorded their voices. And today was movie day. So we had the air popper, nice. no butter, you know, cause that's, that's not a good thing to mix with Chromebooks. <laughs> but uh, as good as they are, you know, I don't think they mix well with butter. But we, uh, yeah, we had movie day. We watched all the, the videos because they screencasted their scratch projects so we could do that. And then, um, you know, did a little feedback and had people talk about their lessons learned. It was joyful. So I hope that our spike in, in uh, community COVID is not going to mean any mandates for schools, including ours. But Time will tell. I hear there was some tech news and like some events and stuff uh, this week, Jason. What are, are we going to talk about that? What do we do on this show? Well, uh, the Edtech Situation Room is a once weekly podcast where we take a look at the tech news and kind of shoot it through the educational lens to see if we can find some insight that might be useful to our fellow teachers, administrators, uh, IT directors, and other folks that support students in education. And this week, we have several topics. We obviously have some Apple news, Google news, something that we like to call the tech correction here on the podcast, privacy news, hardware news, um, our favorite topic, which is miscellaneous. And then at the end of tonight, we'll share a little interesting tidbit that we like to call the geek of the week. But I guess, Wes, uh, yesterday, iPhone 12 is released, and I'm wondering if you have any initial quick impressions as kind of the podcast Apple aficionado? Well, you know, <laughs> Moore's Law marches on, right? In in all the discussions, when, I didn't watch the whole event, but, you know, of course, read some read some articles about some summaries. I, I got through part of the initial, I, actually all the HomePod mini sections. It'll be interesting to see if Spotify is supported by the HomePod mini. The HomePod mini is uh, 99 bucks. Uh, as I, we've talked about on the show, we're uh, a Google family, you know, with about four Google Home Minis and numerous smart plugs and all that. And so we're into that ecosystem. Uh, but it does look like a very, a very sweet speaker. Um, I had not until I was reading about 
whether Spotify would be on there or not, <clears throat> realized that Spotify had filed, I think in March, maybe against Apple in the EU. Um, and, and I trust, um, you know, our uh, assertions of monopolistic behavior uh, case. I don't know what the timeline for that is, but that's really the big thing for us is, uh, you know, well, there's a whole lot of things and actually ac access to Google and how good Google is and, and how much Google knows our lives. All, all those things are, are pretty important. But um, I did hear in the iPhone section, you know, that, again, they've doubled the amount of pixels. Uh, and I don't know if that was for the pro version. But, you know, when you continue to double things like speed and and capabilities, it is just pretty astounding. The number one thing I'm interested in is 5G. And I think we talked about this maybe in the show either last week or the week before. Um, I did drop an article in, I think I put it under miscellaneous because it's Verizon. I'll move it up to the Apple section, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, Verizon nationwide 5G ready for iPhone 12. Don't expect a big speed boost. And this was Ars Technica on October the 13th. And that was certainly a big deal that, you know, this iPhone is going to support more, you know, bands of of, uh, of 5G, but, you know, it's just early days. They have not rolled out the 5G network substantially. Uh, Verizon claims nationwide coverage, but according to a definition, the article says that's over 15 years old, that means you reach 200 million people in the United States, which you can do by, you know, picking your largest cities and leaving the vast majority of the country geographically, you know, out of the picture. The article also says, because I didn't know this, I've really, really just heard the the speed predictions about theoretically, you know, how fast this will be. And Apple talked about that. But this article gets into the details that, I mean, <laughs> AT&T, when they rolled out their 5G, the PC magazine did a lot of testing on this. Their 5G was actually slower than their 4G had been. Um, there's dis differences in distance and, and penetration through, you know, walls and structures and things like that. But there's, they said that, you know, they're lighting up the 5G icon uh, on these phones. And this is really a big, you know, marketing thing. It's not going to be that significant from a speed standpoint now. But, you know, down the road, there is that potential. Um, but they're going to also, this was interesting in the announcement, um, there's going to be more battery consumption when you're using a 5G connection. And so part of what uh, Apple has designed the new iPhone 12 to do is when you don't need that additional speed to go down to 4G. And so Verizon is also right now using the same part of the of the spectrum of bandwidth that is used for 4G and, and LTE. So, you know, it's a, another phone, another day. Um, Apple is is late, as they sometimes are, to some technology uh, competitions with the HomePod. I, I think the biggest thing is, is the artificial intelligence capability. And I have yet to see evidence either in my own life using Siri on my, my iPhone or reading things that Siri is something to be, you know, amazed and happy about. So there are some interesting, you know, features with family collaboration and things like that and intercom, but that's the stuff we have with the Google Home now. So Jason, I think I can be pretty confident that the HomePod Mini, at least, did not encourage you to ditch all Amazon and Google devices, throw them into the dumpster immediately, and place your order for a November shipment or whenever they're actually going to ship. Uh, that, that's correct. And that was you know definitely the least compelling thing, uh, in my view, of the things announced by Apple yesterday. I will say 5G is not 
uh, it's almost of no temptation to me at this point. And you made a really good point in last week's episode, Wes, that part of it is that it needs to be much more consistently available before it makes sense to upgrade to a device because of 5G. But I would take that one step further to say, I, I did look last week, I was able to find a website that uh, talked about 5G availability by city. And apparently there is a 5G tower in Missoula. It is a T-Mobile 5G tower, so I would qualify for that. I would be able to utilize that. But there's one in in the county, and that's just not enough consistency for me yet. And to be very frank, what uh, you know, what you mentioned before in regards to when Verizon says nationwide is based on 200 million people availability, that leaves 133 million people out of that. And that's been part of my problem with 4G and 4G LTE implementation is that I would rather, I mean, I think 5G is going to be a really special thing once it does have wide availability, but I would just like 4G and LTE to be more widely available. Uh, and again, I, I get that you know it is a better condition in urban areas, but I am in what might be described as a small town uh, for someone that, that is kind of an uh, easterly geographical influence. Uh, it's a town of, of 70,000 people that has a university and a, a young crowd that lives in town. And I would say that T-Mobile's pretty good, Verizon's pretty good, AT&T's pretty good here, but they're only pretty good because there's just not good coverage. And then you leave town and it gets, with the exception of the inner state super spotty. So I'm not going to be I, like, if I happen to buy a device that has 5G, awesome. But for me personally, there's just nothing tempting in that yet. I do know from reading the coverage that the cameras in the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 mini are both dramatically improved once again. Uh, I did uh, have someone cite a stat to me uh, this morning that, and I don't know really how you measure this, but like the, the nighttime camera features are like 80% better. I don't really know what that means, but how you quantify that, but well, it means pretty awesome. I mean, it, it, yeah. uh, my, our daughter has an 11 pro and it is amazing what it can do. We were camping and took some, you know, shots, uh, you know, by, by firelight and by lantern light and whatever. And it's just, it's spectacular. That feature is really amazing. Well, and if it's 80% better, what is that? That's just, well, that's, that's what I was going to say is that I think the iPhone is the leader in, in well, actually, uh, the night sight camera on the Google Pixel is, is pretty great too. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that, 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 that's a really useful feature. I don't take enough photos, um, uh, to, you know, make a, or to, to, to buy a new phone based on that. In fact, I think the, the, I have the Pixel 3a is my, my daily driver right now. And that has the same camera as the Pixel 4, which apparently was an outstanding camera. But the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, this is good enough for what I do with it. But yeah, I'll be curious to see when 12s get released and friends of mine are using them to hear back from it. I'll say that if anything's going to get me back in the Apple Apple universe, it's the watch. Um, and I'm not quite there yet. I'm still very happy-ish with my Google offerings there. Um, but we shall see. Got an article to join to that, and then we can go a different direction if you like. This is a bandwidth article, so we're talking about 5G and <clears throat> how fast or not fast that might be. Uh, so I put this under the miscellaneous category, Ars Technica, October 8th. Comcast says gigabit downloads and uploads are now possible over cable. I don't think I did this one last week. This was a October 8th article. Um, did I, do you remember me saying this? No, that's new. Okay. 
I'm, you know, I'm over 50. So, hey, things, you know, just slip the mind. Uh, this is a, this is a huge deal. We're on, we're not on Comcast. We're on uh, Cox here in Oklahoma City. But the maximum residential upload speed that we can get, and they will, you can't give them more money for any more, is 35 gigabits per second. We have a, a theoretical thousand down, but you have to go with AT&T and their fiber, which is a sync, which is a symmetric 1000 down, 1000 up, which is also cheaper. It's about it's like 70 bucks or something like that a month for a gig up and down. So this announcement by Comcast is, is a really big deal. Um, they also like Cox have been limiting their services residentially to a 35 megabit per second upload. So they, um, it's not fiber to the actual, you know, endpoint. It's it's still or fiber. What is that called? Fiber to the node or something? It's basically fiber close to your house. The the coaxial cable still provides the final home connection. And I don't know. I'm not a a network engineer, obviously, but it seems like if you're going to be bringing data one direction at a certain speed, I'm you know why would there not be a theoretical possibility of sending it the other direction? The same speed. And that's what this confirms that it is possible. I'm going to be excited to see that uh, become available. We are just a couple blocks too far west of the AT&T fiber Internet service line. When we at some point and who knows, maybe this won't happen. But let's just say someday we are house hunting uh, here or somewhere else. Uh, and by the way, we're not <laughs> doing that right now. But at whatever point, oh, Internet speed is huge. And you know, if I had the choice today to pick a home that was inside an AT&T service area for their fiber internet, that would weigh significantly on, you know, the decision. I'm not saying we would make that. My wife would not allow me, I'm sure, to make that decision uh, based solely on, you know, the fact that internet speed can, can be there. But the promise of internet from the Scott, from space and from satellite is continuing to hang in the air. The promise of 5G, and, and I'll just, I'll throw that question to you, Jason. What should we do seeing this future as we as we probably can that it's just going to continue to get faster and faster? Does that have any implications for us in in schools and in education uh, when we think about the fact that this is not we haven't like reached the wall, you know, where, oh, that's it. You know, no more speed for you. Well, I, I from, from one standpoint that. Obviously, we're starting to push more and more stuff over Internet, right? Like so, a, a, a lot of television video that used to come over uh, cable wires is now or, or over the air is now coming over this piece. And, I, you know, we, we've mentioned a lot of articles uh, and they've been starting to come around again about how companies are starting to think about letting work at home folks be permanent and allowing opportunities for people to choose to work their home permanently. I mean, I like working at home and I've enjoyed, well, enjoyed ish working at home, you know, since since March uh, uh, 12th. But the, the downfall to me is I really also like to work at work and I have a beautiful office on a beautiful campus in a beautiful town. And, um, you know, it, it, it's something that I miss, but one of the things that I, I don't have an issue with is that I have, I have 400 down and 20 up. 
uh, as part of my cable connection. And that's about enough, I think, for two people working at home that we never really have internet issues at home. But if you start thinking about what happens if it's a couple and two kids, that two kids are learning to home, let's say post pandemic, they decide that they're going to stick with distance learning as, as a model. Uh, you're going to need increasing bandwidth to make that happen. And I've heard uh, stories and read stories and accounts of people sharing internet connections as part of the stay at home orders that happened earlier this year where there were, you know, 10, 12, 15 people sharing 30 down and five up or a hundred down and five up. And that's a uh, hundred down and five up, I would say is not super great internet. I do know that, in fact, I have an example of this. That's my uh, sister's internet in Salem, Oregon. It's, it's a cable connection. It's a hundred down. I'm sorry. It's 200 down and five up. And she wonders why during the day her zoom calls aren't working out with uh, her students or her husband is a principal. And then her youngest daughter is, is taking zoom classes via the high school. And it's just not enough. It's because five is not enough. Uh, up, up bandwidth to be able to pull off multiple video calls. And so if more people are going to work at home or if more stuff is more traffic is going to go over the internet, then the expansion of bandwidth, I think for home users is, is pretty important. That said, going back to an earlier point we made today, rural internet is a train wreck in the United States. It still is. And in fact, uh, my in-laws who live uh, a 20 minute drive from the state capital in Montana, we're not talking about a completely remote area. They have no viable wired internet solution. Um, they gave up a terrible DSL line uh, uh, six or so months ago to go mostly with wireless uh, via cell phone coverage. And uh, they were told it's, it's so bad that, uh, the company that serves them told them that they wouldn't sell them the line back. We wouldn't set this up as a new customer, returning customer, because it's so terrible. We'll let you keep it, but if you get rid of it, it's never coming back. And that's again, uh, you know, they live in a rural area, but it's again, a 20 minute drive outside of, 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 of the state capital. And that's the case. So, I really hope that all of this, you know, massive expansion of bandwidth in urban and suburban areas comes with a really real nationwide conversation about bandwidth for the masses. Well, and here we'll, you can touch on this idea of a, of a tech correction and the need that we have. I will say, Wes will say, uh, for, for regulation and some government intervention. I know that there are people that freaking flip out when you say that, like, oh, the government needs a law. But let's think about electrification, folks. You know, electrification would not have happened to rural America without cooperatives and without government action because the return on investment is not there for companies. I worked for AT&T for two years for, from 2006 to 2008. I had really interesting conversations with some executives about community Wi-Fi and why this wasn't happening and how we could like do this. And part of the answer is, Return on investment. Is this going to be a, you know, a cash cow for the company? I mean, that's how most corporations think. There are some exceptions to that and different, you know, situations, but in general, you know, it's about profitability. And so to get electricity to rural America, we had to have collaborative action that involved things like cooperatives and things like, you know, legislation, the e-rate, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm not thinking of, of the right, uh, laws, but basically, you know, the, 
the mandates that we had for connectivity and, and we're, and also phone lines, right? That was how, you know, we got phone lines everywhere. So I think that we have very important roles to, to look at government. And we can talk some more later in the show, probably about tech correction and consumer protection and that kind of an analogy. But absolutely. Um, I think we had an article maybe two, two shows ago, fairly recently where, you know, there are some studies that show during COVID we've had an average increase in the broadband speed in several states. I know that, that Wyoming was one of those and I think Kansas was one. But guess what? It was the action of state legislatures and governments that were acting on the part of residents that, you know, in, in those cases, I think led to fiber build outs and expansions of service. And then you end up getting the last mile service to folks. So I am a hundred percent with you. And I think that this is important advocacy and nothing has dramatized it more than our present COVID pandemic, which makes uh, access to the internet and the ability to work over an internet connection, you know, literally a lifeline for all kinds of people, more people than ever before. Where shall we go next, sir? Well, uh, there are a lot of interesting articles this week um, on what we loosely refer to as the tech correction here on the podcast. And we started using this term in 2016, and um, it was largely a response to the perception that tech had led us to down a bad road for the 2016 election. And as it turns out, we were talking about things like Cambridge Analytica, the pushback on, on services like Facebook, uh, in taking our private data and monetizing it and doing nefarious things with it. And I think there's a lot of interesting articles this week that could take us down some fascinating rabbit holes. So I guess I'd start off with, uh, we mentioned last week that the uh, House of Representatives have released their antitrust report aimed at tech biggies, including Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. And there is an article that I would certainly recommend that you take a look at later from Wired about, the, they call it the 14 juiciest quotes um, around the antitrust report. But I wanted to dig into some things that have started to bubble up after that, that House report was released. And I'll give you an example of um, uh, some of the stuff that's being talked about, not from a regulation standpoint, but as we start to dig more deeply into kind of how tech handled their massive growth and their huge potential of kind of wiggling their way in our lives. There's a great September 24th um, Ars Technica article that I think is, is, is kind of illustrative, right? So basically the article is called Former Facebook Manager Says We Took a Page from Big Tobacco's Playbook. And uh, the article talks a little bit about um, a, a congressional hearing that happened uh, in September where they're, they're still trying to figure out like, why is it that all these technologies were kind of wiggling their way into our lives and then ultimately in things like elections. And they're um, the, the person that, that testified, his name was Tim uh, Kendall. He was the director of monetization for Facebook for uh, four pretty critical years, 2006 through 2010. And he talks a little bit about the notion that, we um, uh, he talked about mining attention and he said that we wanted to make um, uh, 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 ourselves addictive from the outset so that no matter what happens down the road, people will continue to come back to the drug. Right. Which would be, you know, uh, again, the big tobaccos thing. Right. Catch someone early on in their formative years, addict them to smoking. And then you have a you know lifelong, maybe a shortened life, but a lifelong user of the product. And the reason why that's interesting to me is that um 
he he talks about the increased levels of nicotine in tobacco and how that led to the the notice or the the um uh the the addiction of tobacco but he said we did a lot of the same thing because we allowed a lot of things to flourish on Facebook that we knew were potentially destructive because we knew that was going to keep people's attention, right? Mining attention in the, the, the social media applications, figuring that once we had everyone kind of hooked, we could go back and clean it up later. And the reason why this article stuck so much with me is that I refer to this way. I think we've talked about it this way, that it kind of feels like that the narrative that's been pushed most of this time is that people stumbled into these platforms trying to connect one another. It offered everyone the ability to publish to a worldwide audience, which is an interesting and incredibly powerful notion, right? Like that you can do that. We talk about that a lot here, that, that that's one of the reasons why we like technologies because you can hand a 14 year old kiddo a worldwide mic and give them an ability to publish to the world with this power of technology. But then, you know, it ran, it got away from us and now we need to figure out how to rein it back in. And if you take this testimony at its face, it appears that well, at least Facebook, I can't speak for all social media companies, but Facebook, according to Mr. Kendall, actually was aware that there were pots of negative groups that were starting to descend upon Facebook, that misinformation was being spread on Facebook, that people were utilizing the platform to really speak to, you know, the worst of, 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 of the community of humanity in an attempt to, to get them to, you know, a kind of feed off of each other to be then addicted to the platform. And this article stunned me because it really flipped around the narrative that I had in my head. And if it's true that Facebook knew that this was going to cause an issue. They just waited for it to implode on them before kind of dealing with it. I'm not sure if they've really done much in the last couple of years to evolve the product. Um, then, you know, it's it's become tobacco then, and that's not good at all. So any comments or thoughts, Dr. Fryer? Well, it's probably going to be difficult to try to ascertain that kind of intent and when did you know it. Um, when you differentiate between misinformation and disinformation and malinformation, that also has to do with an intent and a perception of intent. Whatever that reality is or whatever that history was, the reality today is that we've got lots of destructive things happening because of these tools and the ways they've been allowed to evolve and just the, the landscape. It's, it's, it's so polluted, but it's also so easily manipulated and even weaponized for malicious purposes. Yeah. So, um, we are going to on November 10th at our school be having a parent university conversation about the social dilemma, which I'm pretty excited about. I think our communications are going to start going out about that. In fact, I need to, need to crowdsource, uh, some good discussion questions. We're going to do uh, zoom breakout rooms and, and invite parents to talk about this and discuss it. And man, we just have to, we need to get beyond. And I was, I was thinking about this over the weekend, like, you know, we're not a political show. We are not going to talk about the election much today. We'll talk about some articles that relate to it, but you know, we, we uh, intentionally steer clear of a lot of that. But I think that, and I'm, I'm actually preparing, I've got a, I'm going to get to do another TEDx talk, um, in the, in the spring. It was originally going to be this fall and it's, it's been moved back. 
<clears throat> and it's about technology fear therapy. And I, I think I'm going to talk about individual levels, community level, and then this larger societal level. We really need to be gearing up and figuring out who we can support, what kinds of nonprofits, what kinds of organizations are going to advocate for the kinds of change we would like to see in these platforms. And because this is, this is really big, right? When you're talking about companies that are as wealthy as Facebook and Amazon and Twitter and Apple, I mean, these are the largest companies from a financial standpoint in the entire world. As far as I know, maybe there's some, maybe Alibaba's up there, but you know, I don't know. We'll have to ask. We'll have to Google that later. It's a big deal. So I think that I would like to, know a little more sort of in the same way that a, that a teacher's union um, or in Texas, I mean, they weren't allowed to call them unions. So they were associations, but you know, they would protect interests and they would have some practical help that you would have with insurance and things, but they, they would advocate on behalf of teachers and they had an agenda that, you know, as a teacher, you were supportive of, I think we need to find those kinds of, of organizations here because um, you know, just like the 2016 election, are we ever going to know the extent to which Cambridge Analytica and, you know, the, 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 the involvement of the Russians, you know, played in, in the final outcome? I don't know. Are we going to learn who killed JFK? There's some things that are going to be difficult to find out definitively, but we can certainly look at the outcome of what happened and, and what is ongoing and see that some action needs to be taken. So I, I that's a quest that, kind of, you know, beyond our news focus of, of this uh, podcast. But as I've said before, one of the great things I enjoy so much about this is the chance to try to connect dots and process this, right? That This is actually something we all, I believe, need are opportunities to process change and connect dots because we've got these articles and these different things that are happening, you know, and then ask a, a so what question, you know, and hopefully it's not, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. There's a lot more to do than just be afraid about these things. So do you have a sense of whether it's, is it EFF or who, who are groups that are advocating around this that you think have a policy agenda out there? Uh, is it the Center for Humane Technology that was behind the social dilemma or are there groups that we can identify that, are are really trying to advocate for some meaningful and constructive change that that'll address these issues. I am not aware of specifics, but I think the conversation is starting to become a little more nuanced in that I like I, I don't think like regulation I, I think is, is is an important option here, but I also think too that we need to compel these companies to start, well, I think being more transparent is part of it, but I think secondarily, acknowledge, acknowledge the problem, right? And all of, and, and I could have dropped 25 articles in about announcements regarding in the next two or three weeks about elections, Twitter, Facebook, we won't well, avoid talking about the election. For sure. <laughs> yeah, the the um, the they're they're announcing policies in regards to you know Facebook announced uh, last week that they that there can be no political advertising on November third because they don't want to uh, they don't want Facebook to be a platform for trying to discourage people from voting because of a claim that someone has won or lost already or claiming victory. And my guess is is that if you believe the folks that believe that the election will not be decided, at least the, the, the federal presidential election will not be decided on November 3rd. It might take into the fourth or fifth before that happens. Um, it would take one side or the other dominating that election to maybe make it a, a clear victor on November 
December 3rd, but I could see Facebook extending its moratorium on ads for a couple of days if it ends up being a, an, a, a one-sided or not a one-sided election. But the bottom line is, is that there, there, it's probably, it's probably much deeper in that. And I think big tech needs to figure out if they don't figure it out, then someone has got to step in and do it for them. The EU has been doing this for, well, upwards of 20 years now, right? Like, it seems like they are much less afraid to regulate big tech. And in some cases, I have to say, I don't like their solutions. We've talked about the so-called right to be forgotten uh, here. And in part because it's just such a bizarre thing, right? Like, I think it it uh, uh, it creates some some really weird situations when it comes to what a modern internet might look like. But the bottom line is, is that uh, there are models for regulating. So big tech's got to decide where they are uh, in that spectrum. Well, here is an article that ties to that. Uh, this is an Ars Technica article from today on the 14th of October. Twitter, Facebook face blowback after stopping circulation of New York Post story. So here we have a situation where the New York Post, which is not a garage, you know, uh, tabloid. I mean, that would be considered by most folks a mainstream media source. Claim to have some leaked emails from Hunter Biden's, um, you know, laptop from a few years ago, and then advances uh, this uh, a theory involving Biden and uh, B- Biden Jr. and Biden Sr. You know, with Russia, etc. And this is actually pretty extraordinary, and I think it's positive to see our platforms taking these kinds of steps. You talked about Facebook proactively thinking about, you know, the the day of the election and, and what they're going to do. Uh, by 9 a.m., maybe Eastern time, um, they had taken – well, uh, Facebook had, had uh, taken the action to uh, limit the spread of this article, and then Twitter – uh, I guess, it's, yeah, it says 11 a.m. That's probably New York time. Uh, Twitter actually completely blocked it. So the term was reducing distribution. That wasn't banning it, but it, they said it, quote, deprecates how Facebook's algorithm amplifies content. Of course, and this has led to blowback and people, you know, who already think that the, the platforms um, unfairly are, are biased against conservative voices. But it was a clear case and then it was acted on rapidly by the platforms of really shoddy journalism and and basically disinformation. And they compare it at the at the top of the article. And I read this saying we're not a political show. Of course, this touches on politics. But this was like what the Comey, the Comey memo had done on the 2016 presidential election, you know, suggesting a scandal. And so anyway, this was some pretty decisive action that was taken by Facebook as well as by Twitter. And I think this is very positive. Uh, again, I, I will agree with you, Jason. I don't think that the steps that the platforms are going to take is going to be sufficient, but we certainly see them taking much more assertive, aggressive action against this kind of stuff in the 2020 election cycle than they did in 2016. And I think that that is positive. So any thoughts about this? Did you see that article on your feed before it was deprecated by Facebook? I did not, uh, although I would say that I probably would scroll past a post article. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I the bottom line, it, it always goes back to where do we draw that line, right? And and, and in, in a way, that's kind of Mark Zuckerberg's argument. And so that that makes this a little complicated. But, you know, I I tend to agree with the action that, that Twitter took and Twitter and Facebook took on that particular article. 
But then again, I mean, that's that things get complicated, right? Because that goes back to point of view. And, you know, I, I don't believe I don't believe that there is an anti-conservative bias in social media or, or Google, for that matter. I, I, I really don't believe that. But at the same time, I also believe that it's just not as simple as it was 20 years ago, that search logarithms are going to try to uh, push to the top of search engines, that social media is going to try to deliver you stuff that is the accurate or the stuff you really want to see. Instead, it's probably programming you more than you want to admit or you want to think about. And I, I think that's something we have to be aware of. And that's also something. I mean, it goes back to, we've talked about this a a couple of times in the past. This is one of the reasons why I don't like this notion that we don't need things like uh, vetted resources anymore because we have Google, right? Or we don't need to teach history in classrooms because kids can just go Google it up. Well, I think history could be shockingly biased, right? And, and, and even though I tend to think that, that all history tends to have some bias to it. And that's from, from my mind as a historian, I was a history teacher when I was in the classroom, the bottom line is is that if we send kids off with no tools, if we send kids off with no base, if we send kids off with no skills, then and just say, well, you can just Google that, so we don't need to teach that information to you, um, you know, who knows what they're subjected to. We are seeding truth to the algorithm. That is exactly what we're doing at that point. Exactly, right? And I think that that's really problematic. Now, let's let's ratchet this up a little bit, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on this one, Dr. Fryer. So, okay, so let's say that social media companies can't get it figured out. And at some point, the government needs to step in. Well, that goes back to last week's House report about uh, uh, anti potential antitrust report or antitrust actions against things like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Well, great article um, from uh, uh, Tech Radar that talks about a couple of the ideas being kicked around is forcing these companies to break up. And as an example of this, Force Google to sell Chrome, force Google to sell Android, right? And I have to say, like, I just don't understand this, right? I understand that's a way to break these companies up, but I, other than breaking up the broader company, none of these products make sense outside the context of the companies that currently own them, right? So Chrome is a really good example of this. You sell Chrome off, right? Well, then, okay, so what happens to Chrome OS, I guess, is is the first question I have. Secondarily, part of the magic of Chrome, in my humble opinion, is the cloud sync of the device, right? That I can download a fresh Chrome browser on any computer, sign in, use my two-factor authentication because I'm good at security and safety, and then suddenly my Chrome browser pops up exactly how I left it, which is set up to tweaked to be a productivity machine for the way I like to work, learn, and communicate, right? So if you sell Chrome off and it's its own thing, I don't know how it really profits enough to be successful long-term, right? We've talked about in the past that the only reason why Firefox is still financially viable in 2020 is because they get ad revenue from Google, right? So there's they, they, they've sold their main search engine spot. So I guess theoretically, Chrome could get money from Google, the search company, to continue to pay for. I don't know how that's really any different, but you know, you lose the ability to sync based on a Google account because that then breaks that piece up. And 
I, I find some of these solutions to be completely bizarre. I understand how problematic it is to have vertical and horizontal trust in place, but I, I just think simply forcing companies to split up into smaller parts, especially in tech, I think is really problematic. Now, it, you could, you could start to draw a little more of a clear conclusion under an Amazon scenario where they make Amazon sell off cloud services, which is hugely profitable, but also completely dominant in the market away from retail sales, right? That makes ever so slightly more sense to me. But I think it goes back to, we've talked about this in the past, if we have to go to regulation, it's not going to be like a simple process. Like a lot of thought and efforts have to go into this to not completely decimate the tech processes that exist. I will preface my response by saying this is very formative because I have not, you know, committed tons of, uh, of brain time to thinking about it. You know, it's like debate. What's my, what's my plan? What's my policy change going to be? I am not favoring these kind of, let's just break them all up uh, and, and solve it. I think we got to look at the impacts and effects that these things are having and look at behaviors. What One of the things we're talking about theoretically is called network effects. This is an economic thing that happens where the, the big get bigger. And especially when you have a regulatory and political climate that is very amenable to, to business and corporations and, you know, just really doesn't have, there's not much pushback. You know, you, you end up with, uh, these mega mergers, um, these huge companies. And, you know, it's just very difficult if you're not a large company to be able to compete. And so we get widening rich poor gaps and, and, you know, problems with, uh, with the e economic distribution of wealth and all kinds of big things. So there are those issues to, to tackle. But I think the behavior of actors in terms of policing, the, the kinds of abuses that are happening on their platforms. I think the, um, the issues with, with monopolistic behavior, uh, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I love Apple, right? But the little bit I've read about the Spotify case, I mean, I, I don't think Apple should be able to, you know, bludgeon, uh, it, it's number one competitor, you know, just because it, it can, for instance, and try to keep it off of its platforms or, you know, use, use that kind of power in that way. Um, I also don't, don't think that we should say to Apple, you have to, you know, there, there's the, there's the big case we don't have in the show notes this week, but, um, with, uh, with Fortnite and is it Epic Games, I think. <clears throat> anyway, over, you know, the payment of the, of the Apple tax and all those kind of things. There's a lot of issues to this, but when it specifically comes to, as we're thinking now about the, the climate of, um, of disinformation and misinformation, uh, the, 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 uh, political climate, the fact that we've got so, so many conspiracy theories, uh, so much you know, bad information that is being shared. And by bad, I'm not talking about things we disagree with politically. I'm talking about stuff that's just not backed up by, you know, good journalism and, and, and good research. Um, anyway, those are the things that I'm thinking about the most, but it's a good question. And I think it's worth wrestling with some more because, Hey, I don't know if you're running for, for election in uh, 20, you know, 24, Dr. Neifer, but uh, we need to have some, some very articulate and well-informed elected officials who are, who are going to be helping bring about these kinds of changes. So um, podcasts, frankly, are a wonderful thing for democratic governance and informed citizenry. Uh, and I hope podcasts are going to continue to thrive because I think these kinds of conversations are, are hopefully not, I mean, they're not only beneficial 
for those of us that, that are, you know, blessed to be in the room, uh, in the room when it happens and be able to talk about it, but also those that can listen to it and possibly have their uh, mind stimulated and, and maybe, you know, action and behavior changed as, as a result. So I'm going to drop an article from the New York Times. This one is called How to Deal with a Crisis of Misinformation. Uh, this is uh, from today as well by Brian Chen. And one of the things it's saying is we need to slow down. We need to be skeptical. Um, they talk about being a fact checker. What I would say here is, you know, the source first. If the source is a Fruit Loop source, it is not a, you know, and, and just add Wikipedia. This was a media literacy lesson I just shared last week with my sixth graders. It's a great thing to put the word Wikipedia in a search query for the, the root domain of the website that you're getting. And if it is some kind of fringe outlier, not a, a source that appears to be trustworthy, like you don't even have to read anything else. You don't have to look at competing claims or anything else. You can just, you know, discard it on the surface of, okay, this source is not going to be credible. Uh, but uh, the article goes on to, in addition to that, say, you know, we should be choosing our news carefully. We should be filtering that carefully. And I do think that the platforms, just like Google has with Google News in trying to really, you know, have a channel of multiple perspectives, but mainstream media perspectives. I think that kind of filtering is valuable. But as you said, with politics, it gets complicated. There's a lot of weeds and we have, you know, folks who are not elected officials and they are not beholden to an elected school board or other board and organization that, that the voters can, you know, vote up and down who are making these kinds of decisions about the information that we are consuming and we are getting. So it is a challenging climate, but it is also one that, you know, that needs you educators. If you're out there listening, uh, we need to be continuing to, to wave the, the flag and carry the torch of media literacy forward. And we also need to help inspire a new generation of students to, to understand these are challenges that we've got to face together and we need to figure out, right? We need to figure them out because I did not think we would, I would live in an era, which I would say is a little bit like the 1930s with the rise of authoritarianism and the, and the ways in which propaganda is, is being used to such, you know, devastating effect. And we've got some serious challenges on our hands and technology is intimately linked to all of those things that are happening. Okay, right. well, we just have 10 minutes left, so oh my gosh. I what? know, wait, wait quickly tonight, <laughs> I know. Um, I There's a couple articles I'm going to save for next week on privacy, because I think they are also uh, rabbit holes and things that I was shocked to read about this week that I thought I would share. I did want to share an interesting Ars Technica article, just because it uh, the, the science is over my head, but uh, this is from Ars Technica on... October 11th, there is apparently a structure of black phosphorus that is a potential way to create a battery that would make battery recharging more like refueling, so almost instantaneous, as opposed to the slow charge that happens now. And this is, uh, the article even admits that this is out there, it could never make it back into, uh, 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 you know, any real battery technology. And I kind of feel like for the last 10, 12 years that there's been a lot of promises on battery technology that haven't necessarily come true. I know Apple was working on a new battery technology. I know Samsung was working on new battery technology. And obviously the batteries are good, right? I mean, the fact that we can get 24, um, 
uh, I, I'm often able to get 48 hours on my Moto G8 power, which has got a big, thick battery. Well, it's a big, thick battery in comparison to a lot of the smaller phones, but it's still pretty svelte in comparison to batteries in, you know, 2005, 2007 on phones. But the interesting thing it noted in this battery was that they're talking about maybe five to eight minutes completely recharging the battery from scratch and that the battery itself would also have more longevity because it could go up to 2000 cycles before degrading in quality. And I just think that that would be really revolutionary uh, about the way we charge our devices. If you could plug it into a wall socket and have it completely go back to a hundred percent, you know, within, um, you know, five, 10 minutes and would really be, I think a real revolutionary uh, process forward. And one assumes too, that if that's also true with that, then things like electric cars could then become a much, much more uh, palatable solution uh, to our broader energy crisis. The range anxiety issue, as we were thinking about this uh, this weekend, as we you know tracked tracked hundreds of miles west to New Mexico. Um, I, I don't have an article about this, but there's uh, some pretty interesting stuff on renewables and the projection for the percentage of renewables that are going to be uh, taking up the the energy. Um, matrix in in the the next you know three to five years, uh, this stuff is really really exciting. So I don't know that we're going to a net zero you know the the green the green deal and exactly you know as fast as as, as that is. But uh, yeah, big uh, big improvements and and important stuff. Let's hit a couple other miscellaneous uh, real quick. I'm gonna go to a, a really great one, which amidst all the other. <laughs> The other news, like if I could put a there, there, there's some certain political names that I would almost want my Google home to just like not mention. Don't do these. So it's, sometimes it's hard to pick up these articles. Fantastic. New York Times from October 7th, Nobel Prize in Chemistry awarded to two scientists for work on genome editing. And these two scientists also happen to be women. And uh, this was awarded uh, for their 2012 work on CRISPR-Cas9, a method to edit DNA. We haven't, I don't think, done a lot of biotech articles lately, but we uh, have in the past in the show. And this really is phenomenal work. And the ways in which this technology is continuing to advance and the promise of that to be used as an incredible, you know, healing um, technology for uh, genetic uh, disorders and, and genetic um, you know, illnesses that, that people have. Uh, of course, it's also going to, you know, pose a variety of issues for how it might be used in, you know, other ways that would be debatable as far as their, their benefit and their viability. But that is a, a great article to share. We probably don't, at least in my experience, amplify the fantastic work of, you know, female engineers, female scientists, uh, math anxiety is a real thing across gender lines, but, you know, we need to be amplifying the possibilities and potential. And I'll touch on this in the geek of the week, uh, for, for young ladies as well as young men to make amazing contributions in these fields and to do things that are literally history changing. And I think that the CRISPR-Cas9 technology and, and that trajectory of genetic editing uh, fits into that. And then here's a fun one. Actually, Jason, you shared it so we can see your, your response. Uh, this is a, not a new article. This is from July of 2019 from the Mac Observer. But at that point, which was 
a little over a year ago. iPhones have a hundred thousand times more processing power than Apollo 11. And this is one of those things that we've probably heard, you know, different keynote speakers like Ian Jukes and Alan November rattle off about, do you realize in your pocket, you know, the computing power that you have? Uh, what, why do you see that as significant? And what is that, uh, where does your mind go when you consider? I know that it may not be an iPhone, Jason, but the the Android phone that you have, which has a comparable processor, is that much more powerful than Apollo 11. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to I was a geeky little kid, right? I had my little Atari 2600, and then my mom bought a – it was a K-Pro 4 was the first computer in my home. It wasn't a Commodore 64. It wasn't an, an IBM PC. It was a K-Pro, which was a CPM-based machine. CPM was a DOS-like operating system that was popular in business computing in the mid-1980s. And I cut my teeth on WordStar on CPM K-Pro, right? And I loved it, and I've been a nerd ever since, right? We then upgrade to a Tandy 1000, which was also kind of MS-DOS-like, and then I have my own computer in college, and then, uh, you know, I've been kind of a, a nerdy guy ever since. But, you know, I always kind of felt that at some point this stuff would be infinitely more important because it kept getting more and more and more and more powerful. And I think some people thought the computer thing was niche, right? That it wouldn't be a, uh, you know, a, something in every home. And yet now everyone is caring a phone in their pocket that is infinitely more powerful than the computers of, of, of our, the earlier days. And so I guess um, it's stunning, but at the same time, um, you know, I think the nerds knew it was coming. Yeah. And what are we doing with it? You know, are we doom scrolling through, uh, through TikTok or uh, Instagram yeah. or, you know, what are we doing? I think my dad may be watching and I'll mention the, the, the Commodore 64 was our computer in seventh grade, you know, oh, learning to, to do basic, right? But dad got a Zenith computer and rather than Microsoft Ooh. Office or whatever it was called works, we went with framework. And so we had this integrated productivity package of word processing database and spreadsheet. And among other things, I ended up doing my Eagle Scout project, uh, writing code in DBase 3 plus for a time and talent survey for our church so they could more effectively get volunteer surveys and then find out exactly, you know, who wants to usher and who wants to, you know, help, uh, help pick up, uh, you know, outside, uh, when we need to clean, you know, clean out the flower, the, the flower beds or whatever. So, you know, it's those kinds of investments is that we've th thought about our own kids. It, it, it's really amazing. Like I, I did never, I did not think that Alexander was going to be a college graduate, working as a robotics engineer, you know, supporting the International Space Station um, and that coding was going to be this thing that he just gets. We had a conversation about that the other day. So you never know where this is going to go and the chance to be able to empower, you know, our own, you know, relatives and, and family, but also students, not only with devices, but with the skills and that with, with some of that passion for what you can create, what you can make and what you can do. This is a great day to do that. Yep, absolutely. Well, Wes, uh, we're near the top of the hour here. Uh, let me do a quick Geek of the Week, and then I'll toss it back to you. I saw an interesting article last week that impacted me so much that I, I did it. It's from Lifehacker on October 9th, and it said, it's time to audit your auto-pay subscriptions. And it noticed some stunning statistics that many, 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 many people have subscription services that they are having auto charge to their credit or debit card that they are not using anymore. And I know we had an article, this was probably four or five months ago, that uh, companies like 
Netflix were actually going through and shutting down not uh, uh not accounts that weren't paying accounts that were paying but were inactive. They didn't want the money. They said they would rather have their their audience engaged, which I thought was very noble of them. But I decided to do that, and I sat down uh and looked at my uh, credit card in the last month, and I found two subscriptions that I wasn't really using. And so I, $14 a month is coming back into my pocket um, uh, uh, because of that. So uh, the article itself is, is really not more, more complex other than check your credit cards and debit cards to see if you have a subscription that you no longer need. Uh, let me ask you a follow-up from a past geek of the week. You were going to work on an iPod conversion project. Has that continued on or is that on pause? Uh, it did, and I. Uh, it's right here. Uh, this is an iPod Generation Four, which was uh, kind of widely considered to be the best monochrome iPod before they moved towards the color and video iPods. Uh, it's. It's. Uh, I've not cleaned it up very much. Uh, I did break into it, and I uh, replaced it with a 256 gigabyte SSD, and also put a new battery into it. So this is infinitely larger and lighter and better battery life than the original iPod, I believe this was a 20 gig. It's now got 256 gigs, so it can hold a very large amount of music. But I have to say, I absolutely love it. It's uh, fun to use and very retro. And it does feel a little weird to listen to music and then not have a browser I can look at so I can entertain myself in that way. But I have been really trying as much as possible to, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, disconnect from you know the internet. And this is an awesome way to do that. Sweet. I'll have to bring my, I've got the original click wheel, um, iPod. And I'm telling you, man, when you had, what they say, a thousand songs in your pocket, five gigs, you know, just amazing. I don't know that that thing is ever going to, you know, power again off of its firewire connection, but pretty cool. Peggy uh, George was saying she remembers using her Commodore 64 back in 1983. Nice. Back in the day. All right. So I have two geeks of the week. They're both AI related. Uh, the first one is something actually that I received via an unsolicited email today, which I, you know, usually am quick to, to delete, but this is a pretty phenomenal opportunity. Uh, and it's for high school students. It's by Stanford PhD students. The program is called AI Scholars 2020, a pre-college intensive in artificial intelligence. And both, I should say both Stanford alumni and graduate students. They have in-person and live online for high school students globally. And man, just connecting with what we were just saying as far as inspiring the next generation, um, they've got in-person in, in Palo Alto, California, New York, Dubai, and India. And then the online, um, it, it is going to even be going um, over winter break, and then there's going to be summer sessions and Man, this just looks so cool. So if you know anybody that is at all interested in coding um, or might have aptitude in that area, being able to do something like this, which is a taste. Um, our daughter participated in a virtual debate camp, actually, you know, admit this, although my dad will grit his teeth. It was at the University of Kansas, the Jayhawks, which are the arch rivals of the Kansas State Wildcats. But she had a fantastic, you know, experience. Um, in, in, in many ways, they just had a, a debate tournament two weeks ago and there was, anyway, it didn't run late and there was, there was some real benefit. We're hosting a, a tournament hosting virtual, but she'll be, you know, hosting it from here. So I would say don't undervalue the power of the virtual. We've talked about professional development and the outstanding 
things that, that Jason and I have been able to participate in, you know, during this COVID time. And anyway, an, an awesome opportunity for students. And then lastly, this is an AI related one as well. This is a podcast recommendation, which this was actually suggested to me by Pocket Casts. Jason and I are both fans of Pocket Casts, which you can find on both the Android and the iOS platform. Uh, it is not the standard, you know, Apple uh, podcast app. Uh, this is from MIT Technology Review, and it is called In Machines We Trust. It is fantastic. It is by a journalist named Jennifer Strong. I've only listened to the first three episodes, but this is so important. This intersection of artificial intelligence with all these different aspects of our lives and thinking about not only the choices we want to make for ourselves and for our homes, but also thinking about some bigger issues and what is happening with policing and, you know, how are the, how is the early adoption of some of these technologies, you know, disproportionately affecting, you know, different people because the, you know, data sets that were used to train these, oh, guess what? We didn't have, you know, you know, people of this ethnicity or, or, you know, people from, from this area um, or, or enough women or men or different, different kinds of things. And so very good podcast and would definitely encourage people check it out. So I, I, I think we probably know, better wrap up. Uh, go ahead. I, did not, I did not go virtually, but I did attend the Jayhawk debate camp in 1991 as a high school debater. Really? So, so there you go. So you owe at least a, a part of, of the debater and the thinker you are to the, the Jayhawks of Lawrence, Kansas. Good stuff. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. I do promise to blog some more. I've uh, fallen off the blogging wagon of it, but I will get back on. And I'm continuing to share both Spanish curriculum as well as my media literacy lessons on mdtech.cassidy.org, which you can find in the show notes. How about you, Dr. Knife? I am a tech savvy teach, and I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncce.org. And a quick plug for their new continued series live at NCCE on Thursday afternoons. Check out their Twitter account, ncce underscore edtech. We appreciate Peggy and I think my father who didn't co- who actually texted me during the show uh, for joining us live. I want to encourage anybody who can on a Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, whatever that is for you in your time zone to join us live. Excellent. Oh, and that's, this is my wrap up, isn't it? I, I was just ready to sit <laughs> back. So, yeah. So thanks. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, and we encourage you to check out all of our show notes on edtechsr.com. You can link to our Google Doc. We'll have some kind of clever title for this show, but we'll most importantly have all the reference links as well as the ability for you to download very small 32 kilobit audio versions and somewhat smaller compressed with handbrake, I will say, downloaded from StreamYard, compressed with handbrake, um, about 100 megabyte or so which is pretty good for an hour long show uh, video versions. And you can always subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. until next time. Stay savvy, stay safe. Keep your mask on out there, folks. It's dangerous. And we'll hope to see you next week on the EdTech situation room. Good night. <laughs>